everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Christian Heim podcast on preventative mental health. My name is Dr. Caroline Heim, and this podcast is from a mental health webinar and Q&A for university students. In this podcast, we're looking at addictions, relationships, and motivations during the time of COVID-19. So I think it's best if we just drop right in at the start. Okay, so um, we're running this mental health talk in response to second and third year um, questions and comments on a wall that we put up about mental health issues. And in response to those questions, a lot of the um, comments were about addictions, relationships and motivation. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And I've got Dr. Christian Heim, consultant psychiatrist here, that'll be talking into that. Hello. So first of all, I'd like to say thank you for coming. It is wonderful that you're here and you're wanting to take care of your mental health or if you're listening in, that's just wonderful. Um, this is the time to be working on your mental health. Everyone's baseline anxieties are up. So um, that's that's this is the time to, to really be thinking about mental health issues. So um, without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to um, Dr. Christian Heim, consultant psychiatrist, and he will talk to you about mental health issues in this COVID climate. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, right, so we're going to talk basically about uh, addictions, relationships, and motivation, because that's what most of the questions were on uh, from the wall. But before that, I've got to discuss some safety issues because it's interesting what's happening in this uh, COVID crisis. Uh, a lot of people will say that they're okay, and yet the suicide rate seems to have gone up dramatically. And this is the first thing that I actually need to say. Uh, if you're unsafe, all right, you've got to put your hand up and say, I need some help. Okay, now that can be either going to a GP and there is plenty of help out there. It can be going to a psychologist. It can be going to the QUT counseling services. Uh, it could be uh, ringing Lifeline 13114 or Beyond Blue or anything. And the interesting thing is here, you would have seen in the media that uh, the government is looking to revamp the whole mental health uh, system to get services to people who need it because they recognize that depression, anxiety, addictions, and suicide uh, are going through the roof at the moment. But here's the thing. If people don't make use of the services, if people don't put their hands up and say, I need help, then uh, any money's going to be wasted. Okay, and the help cannot go to people who won't ask for help. Which means I've got to say there's no uh, shame in asking for help. Everybody needs help. During this time, I'm taking care of doctors that need help. I saw somebody today who's having a, a really difficult time with his life, but he is uh, taking care of a whole lot of other people. And so that gets done. Psychiatrists, we take care of each other. We will go and see each other and have chats and uh, check in with each other. So absolutely everybody uh, is vulnerable to mental health issues. Okay. Having said that though, most people are not in life and death situations. Most people are not actually getting depressed. Most people are a little bit more anxious. Actually, I venture to say that everybody's a little bit more anxious, that people are getting poor sleep. People are drinking a little bit more. And from what we found out on the walls, people are worried about their addictions creeping back. They're worried about their relationships because being together with somebody 24-7 or being apart from somebody 24-7 is putting a strain on their relationships. And now as we start to 
restrict the isolation requirements and ease back into the economy, people are going, oh, I'm not feeling as motivated as I should or as I was. Where did all that go? What can we do about it? So they're the three things that I'll be talking about. Addictions, relationships, and motivation. Now, the questions that we got on the wall had to do with uh, specific types of addiction. Uh, somebody's smoking is getting back, they're back into the weed, they're drinking a lot more alcohol than they used to, or the porn addiction is back. And that's very easy to do because we live in an age where a laptop is our whole work, our whole entertainment system, and our whole social environment. And with a few taps, we can all be anywhere. So how do you get on top of these uh, when they've come back? Okay, first of all, let's say a few things about addictions in general. Anybody can get addicted to something. That is, anybody who has a brain. One of the fundamental things about a brain is it's been developed and designed to give you either pleasure or pain. And let's face it, pleasure feels great and pain feels terrible. Now, science knows that there is a survival value in this. It's a general principle. Things that are good for your survival feel great. They give you pleasure. And the best one to illustrate that is actually food. Food that is nutritious and gives you energy tastes great. In fact, food tastes so good that we take it for granted because we eat it every day. And yet there was somebody out there talking to us about how they're into their comfort eating, how they're eating a whole lot more than they used to. And it's because of the pleasure of food. Sometimes we will go for the food just for the pleasure of it rather than its nutritional value. Gosh, who does that? All of us, all of us do that, okay? Because food tastes great. But if we try to take away the pleasure and have just the pleasure and forget about the purpose, which is the nutrition, that's when we get into problems. The second example that I'll use is, is sex. Sex feels incredibly good. Why does sex feel incredibly good? Well, from a survival point of view, it's because it gives nature an ability to spawn a new generation. It's the way our species propagate. Now, particularly since uh, we had the birth control pill from the 1950s, but we've been doing this for thousands of years, we've tried to see what can we do to get the pleasure, but without the purpose, without having people, okay? Uh, Sorry, I just saw that, that Tony sort of speaking there. But anyway, uh, so what can we do to get the pleasure without the consequence? And as you know, particularly in the area of sex, this has gotten us humans into a lot of complex situations for long periods of time. So the first thing that I want to tell you is that addictions in particular are there because we try to get the pleasure without the purpose. Why? Because pleasure feels so damn good. But the thing is that if you can connect pleasure and purpose, then you'll have a winning combination for your brain and for your own survival. And that becomes an important concept when you're trying to get on top of addictions. Okay? So, as I said, anybody with a brain can get addicted. 
In your brain, you have a chemical called dopamine. It is manufactured in what's called the ventral tegmental area and you experience it in the nucleus accumbens, which is a part of your limbic system. Your limbic system is the part of your brain that basically feels, all right? Now that's, that's really simplifying it a lot, but basically your emotions, uh, feeling your sensations where you feel pleasure and pain is all in the limbic system. Where you think, as a person and make decisions is in your orbital frontal cortex. And your orbital frontal cortex is part of your frontal lobe. It's that forehead that we have that gives us an evolutionary advantage over, let's say, crocodiles, okay? If you don't use your frontal lobe, if you don't think about your situation in your life, you actually lose any evolutionary advantage that you had over crocodiles. Right, And we actually see this particularly in angry young males that drink a lot of alcohol on a Friday or a Saturday night. They start thinking like a crocodile. If they want to have sex, they'll just look for sex. If somebody gets in their way, they will just become aggressive. All right, And it's not thinking. It is being like a crocodile. So the next thing about getting on top of addictions is you have to think because addictions are pleasurable. They're amazingly pleasurable. And we humans are so clever that we have found ways of saying, okay, how can we have the ultimate pleasure and take away all purpose? And the thing that gives the ultimate pleasure is actually amphetamines, particularly methamphetamine, but also ecstasy, speed, MDNA, because what it does is for a little bit of effort, and a little bit of effort just has to be snorting something, as in cocaine, you get to release so much dopamine in your limbic system that you can have the biggest hit of pleasure that is possible. But there's no purpose in it. Now, here's the thing. When people hear that, they go, oh my gosh, let's go for the pleasure. And in one sense, it's actually a big surprise that all of us don't get addicted to things like cocaine because it feels so good. But here's actually why we don't get addicted. Because the people who get addicted end up with a life of misery. The trouble with the pleasure of addictions is that they feel so intense and so good that people will end up giving away life itself for the addiction. So everybody that I have treated for addictions started out saying, I want pleasure, and they end up in pain. And then it's a real painful journey back. So anybody who's found that their addictions have just gotten the better of them these last couple of weeks, it's good to get on top of it early. And I'll give you a few tools to do that. To do that, I want to give you a little equation, and it has to do with happiness, because in a sense, we're all reaching for happiness. So the equation is this, happiness equals long-term contentment and short-term pleasure. I'm going to say that again. Happiness equals long-term contentment and short-term pleasure. The thing is that the short-term pleasure is actually so easy to get and it feels good straight away. The long-term contentment needs a whole lot more effort and it takes time before you get any reward or pleasure from it. 
But if you can keep your long-term contentment more important than your short-term pleasure, then you actually get through this whole thing about addictions really well. That's harder to do than it sounds, okay? The bottom line is this. You can actually enjoy any short-term pleasure you want. Just don't get it, just don't let it get in the way of your long-term contentment goals, okay? So if you decide to drink a bit more on a Friday or a Saturday night, just make sure that it doesn't affect the next university assignment that you put in, okay? If you're gonna wipe yourself on, out on the weekend, that's fine as long as you get up and make it to work the next Monday, all right? If you're going to spend uh, a lot of time on the internet, uh, gaming or uh, in porn, that's fine, but if your long-term relationship is breaking up because of it, then your long-term contentment is suffering and it's actually not worth it. Now, we know that when we think about it, the trouble is that we feel about it first and we so often go with our feelings, okay? So, what do we do? Okay, I'm going to spend the rest of this talking about people who already have some addictions in their life. They're not fully addicted where they've got to go see a specialist like me or a doctor or some sort of a rehab clinic, but they know they're drinking too much, they're smoking too much, they're spending too long on the internet, okay? The thing is that your brain will most often choose to go where the pleasure is, which is why it's so hard to give up an addiction or even to cut down an addiction. And I will use the example of, uh, let's say, smoking. Uh, if you smoke cigarettes or weed, uh, you know that you're doing yourself long-term damage. Uh, we have so many studies that tell us that smoking weed and smoking cigarettes is a long-term risk factor for heart disease and lung cancer and emphysema. And everybody knows that, but they smoke anyway. Why is it? Because of the short-term pleasure overrides the long-term contentment. So how do you cut back? Well, people try to cut back and they find, oh, you know what? This is a lot harder than I thought. Then they feel bad about themselves. They go, oh, I can't do this. And so they give up trying to quit and they go back to smoking with a lower self-esteem. The trick in overcoming any of your addictions is to feel good about overcoming your addiction. Smoking is the easiest thing to do because it's so expensive, okay? So if somebody is smoking a packet of cigarettes a day, that's about $30 these days, okay? Now, if you could save $30 a day for six months, you could have a large overseas trip, okay? So you can actually have the choice of smoking another packet of cigarettes or saving 30 bucks. And I have had some people pin $20 notes to a wall to watch their money grow while they give up smoking, okay? Uh, now, if you have to cut down on your cigarettes, let's say you cut down gradually from 20 to 18 to 15 to 10, and you're just going down all the time, what I want you to do is enjoy the cigarettes that you're having. Don't feel guilty about them. Say, hey, this is part of a program for me to give up my cigarettes or to uh, 
cut down on my drinking or I'm cutting back on my porn. So what I'm going to do is enjoy what I'm watching now, but every week you just cut it down a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And I know that it'll get to the stage where it'll be painful, but you'll already be a lot further along the way than when you first started. And you keep that equation in front of you. Happiness equals long-term contentment and short-term pleasure, but it's the long-term contentment that's more important. And sometimes when you're desperate for a cigarette or for another hit of cocaine or whatever, you've got to talk to yourself about what your long-term contentments are. And so you bring to mind your long-term contentments. You have a picture of your family. You have a picture of whoever you are in relationship with. You have a picture of what your goal is for the next five or 10 years. You write out a story of how you see yourself as a person in 10, 20 years time if you do not have an addiction. And then if you want, you can have a look at who you will be in 20 years time with an addiction and there'll be a big difference. And then you use your orbitofrontal cortex to make a choice. Where am I actually going to go? All right, so that, that's all that I want to say about addictions at the moment, because I still want to say something about relationships and motivation, because they're all actually interrelated. We had uh, a question on relationships. Somebody who was asking, uh, you know what, during this time of uh, COVID crisis, I'm not feeling that secure with my girlfriend. They seem to be um, uh, texting other guys and, hey, I want our relationship to last. How do I know? A long-term relationship is part of the long-term contentment for absolutely everybody on this planet. We are social beings. We like to share ourselves. We like to share love. Less than 1% of any population will go through life without a long-term relationship. Okay, that's not very many. And, and basically, we're just leaving room for people like hermits, monks, nuns, and people who want to spend their life on yachts going through the, uh, the seven seas. It's not many people. All of us want a relationship and all of us want a relationship to work. It's just that it's so damn difficult because problems come up. So I want to give you two principles that actually help to keep a relationship together because relationships, particularly for people in their 20s, uh, have a very difficult framework. The current way of doing relationships is actually quite a difficult one, all right? The, the rules uh, actually lead to a lot of hurt. And then by the time somebody is 25 or 26, they have often experienced so much hurt that they give up on relationships. And I actually don't want you to do that. I want you to get to the stage where you can actually find the relationship you want. So we're talking about here when you're in relationship with somebody, the two principles are to be as honest as you can and to be as gentle as you can. Now, I know that that sounds really simple, but they're really hard things to do. Honesty has to do with trust. And the longer that you're with somebody, the more that you'll be able to trust them, which is why a relationship of just a few weeks or a few months is really quite fragile because you can't lean on years of trust. Still, as you know, relationships break up after 10, 20 years, okay? 
The thing about being honest, and I don't mean sort of, you know, you confess all your sins all the time. That's, uh, that's only a small part of honesty. It has to do with letting the other person know how you feel, but also what your needs are. If we have two people who let each other know what their needs are, then there's a chance they will both be able to fulfill each other's needs. And that's what makes for a good long-term relationship. So if we talk about the guy who's chatting with a ho- uh, who's worried about his girlfriend because she is chatting with a whole lot of guys on the internet, his need is to feel secure in the relationship. So the way to be honest is to say, look, you know, I'm just feeling a bit uncomfortable about who you're talking to. Okay. Now I'm not talking about a guy who's going to control his girlfriend by looking at all her mobile phone contacts, you know, and making sure she's not allowed to do anything. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about honest communication that says, this is how I feel. We also live in an age where people feel that you can't make demands on each other. Gosh, if I say that, that means that I'm actually demanding that the other person look out for me. And yes, you are. We live in a society that makes demands on each other all the time. If you drive a car, we have this demand that we make on other drivers that you stay to your side of the road. Okay, And that's a demand that's actually so important that we enshrine it in law. Another law that we have that reflects a strong demand that we have on each other is don't hit me. I actually demand that other people do not hit me. That is called violence. That is abuse. And it's not what we value in our society. But it's a demand. We're actually demanding each other that we are able to deal with our own emotions enough to not hurt each other that much. So when you're in a relationship where the aim is for one person to love the other person the way they needed to be loved and vice versa, and that's a huge ask, which is why it takes years to find and cultivate a relationship before you can say, yep, we're in it for the long term. We need to actually be able to be honest with each other. And as a psychiatrist, I have to tell you, when when people first come to see me, they're not always honest with me, okay? Because there are things that they've done or things that they feel that they think they're not allowed to have done or felt. But when we reach that stage of honesty, then we can start. And in a sense, a real relationship starts when you start being more honest with each other. Now, before you think I want you to go and sort of tell your deepest, darkest secrets to everybody, no, honesty uh, comes gradually. The more you're with somebody, the more you just go through layer, 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 and that builds up trust. Which leads me to the second point being gentle with each other. Although I'm saying, yes, we make demands on each other, we make demands gently on each other. We try to find out what it feels like to be the other person. What do they need at this stage? How can I say what I need to say gently? How can I help them gently in the situation that they're in? Or how can we just share some fun time together gently. And as a general rule, if you're a very vivacious, extroverted person, you may need to work on being more gentle. But people who are introverted, held back, 
you may actually need to work on being more honest. But getting this blend of honesty and gentleness is what can make for a really good relationship. And unfortunately, relationships are always going to go sour. And unfortunately, it's always a lot of work before you find a relationship. And when you find a relationship, it's still a lot of work. But motivation. We're now coming back to the stage where we're getting back into going to university and putting in effort, writing assignments, going to lectures, and working towards getting a university degree. Okay, so a few weeks ago, uh, I put together a little talk about rhythm and routine because rhythm and routine keeps your brain motivated. And in that time, I talked about how we've all got lazy brains and we are all prone to procrastination and we're all prone to wanting rewards without any effort. And that's why at a time when a lot of us have watched a lot of Netflix series or have uh, done a lot more sleeping or stayed in bed or stayed in pajamas all day long, this idea of getting up and putting in effort again, it doesn't feel that good. So I will bring you back to the equation of happiness equals long-term contentment plus short-term pleasure. In a sense, what a lot of people have done these last weeks is they've had a lot of short-term pleasure to the point where it's not even pleasurable anymore. It's time to get back to the long-term contentment. And that means effort. If you want to get to the top of the mountain, you're going to have to climb. And that takes effort. If you want the pleasure of seeing the big view on top of the mountain, you're going to have to put in the effort of climbing. And that links pleasure and purpose. The easiest way to do this is to know what motivates you. And to know what motivates you, there is no better way of doing this than writing out your list of values. Values is a huge topic for human beings. Uh, positive psychology at the moment talks about uh, finding values. Acceptance commitment therapy talks a lot about finding values. As a psychiatrist, I talk a lot about people finding their values. But I've got to tell you that the ancient Greeks talked a lot about finding their values too, okay? We have kept this as a motivating factor in our life for thousands and thousands of years. The best way to find out what your values are is actually to look up the internet and just find a list of values. Just type in a list of values. I did it just a couple of hours ago, and there's a list of 50 values, list of 10 most common values, list of 200 values, list of 400 values, the ultimate list of values, 500 plus values, all right? It's all out there. You look through that list and you'll see things like honesty, faithfulness, loyalty, making money, having fun, having pleasure, friendship, love. Anything can become a value, anything that you value in your life. But you've got to spend time by yourself because nobody can decide for you what your values are. And then what happens is you can use your values to guide your goals. Okay, let's say you have a goal like, I want to finish a university degree in three years' time. That's a good goal to have. That's a great goal to have. The thing that keeps you motivated is knowing why you want to finish a university degree in three years' time. And that will come down to your values. You may value creative expression. You may value the ability to earn more money. 
you may value being together with other people in a theatrical production or in an orchestra or in a band. Whatever your value will drive why you're doing this university degree. So you use it to drive your goals and you remind yourself even of your daily and your weekly goals, what your values are. And I hate to labor it, but write out your values. Know at least your top 10 values. It'll keep you going. It'll get you uh, to get out of bed in the morning sometimes. And then you, it will, you can use it to prioritize your life and you use it for your behaviors. So I'm gonna come back to addictions. Addictions happen because we value pleasure. And quite frankly, who doesn't value fun and pleasure? I certainly do. But if you can value long-term contentment and relationships above short-term pleasure and addictions, then you'll have a winning combination for your brain and you'll have motivation to keep going and get back to your university work. Okay. Well, thank you very much for um, coming. Um, if you could use the chat function now just to ask any questions. Um, okay, in the interim, while you're um, working out or getting the courage to ask the question, you can write it privately too, by the way. Um, there was one of the uh, issues on the wall was that uh, there was, there's been a lot of relationship breakups lately. Yes. And, um, and so one of our students was struggling because um, their parents had separated during this time and um, he was having to pack up, he or she, I don't know if it was he or she, were, try, were having to pack up their room and, and move house constantly and it was just really unsettling and difficult for them and it was really having a bad effect on their mental health. Uh, it's tough, it's tough. It is, it's, it's yeah. actually very tough because uh, What's happened is this virus has put a stress on everybody in society. So our baseline anxieties go up and people who are just coping with their lives kind of fall over a bit of an edge. And so unfortunately for a lot of relationships, that actually means that the relationship breaks down. And I have a real heart for people who uh, are caught up in the midst of that. And often it is teenage or young adult children that get caught up in the midst of that. And it becomes really difficult because you know what? Uh, leaving home and leaving uh, school and going to university and a large city is already difficult enough as it is. So to having to cope with your parents breaking up becomes a whole lot more. Okay, so the first thing that I want to say is the whole reason that it's a stress is because we value relationships. Uh, we actually feel sad when our parents split up. We actually feel sad if any of our friends split up. We value relationships. We, we get the feeling that if a relationship, particularly one that's been together for 15, 20 years, if it breaks up, then something's gone wrong, okay? So uh, through that, to sort of say to your mother or your father, you know what, <clears throat> I value the relationship. I still value my love with you, mum, and you, dad, and I want us to make sure that we've got a good relationship. How can we increase the love in our relationship? And you've also got to let your needs be known, okay? I'm going through a hard time here. I need this. And it's a hard thing to do because the other people are going through a hard time as well. Yeah, but thanks for that question on the wall. It's, it's, it's a really tough one, okay? And 
all the best with it, okay? We've got a couple of questions that have come in, okay? So the first one is how to manage anxiety around performances and presenting tasks. Um, yep, okay, so we will just answer that one first. So that's certainly something to do with um, what we're having to deal with in uh, at university. Um, and performance anxiety is very real, okay? And let me assure you that there are many, many <laughs> actors that are out in the industry that have huge levels of performance anxiety. Um, as you know from the lectures, I have been interviewing actors on the West End um, and on Broadway that have issues, um, performance anxiety issues. Some of them actually had to give up two years of their career to, um, to help them deal with it. Others still have a bucket beside the stage because they throw up before they go on stage. And the very famous Sir Laurence Olivier used to stand in the, in the wings and swear at the audience. So all of the above, there's some techniques for you, but no, not really. Um, what I would recommend, and I will pass it over to Christian to give you some of the ideas there, but a lot of the actors that I spoke to um, use rituals, okay? Rituals that calm them um, just before they went on to perform, okay? So um, one of them uh, did a, a, a bit of a, a workout um, and because that's physical, it gets into your body and you're embodying all of the stress then, which is very good. Um, a little, not a, not a big heavy workout, but you know, a brisk walk. Another one actually had a little exercise routine they do before they performed. Um, and then there was, uh, there's deep breathing, of course, and I'll, I'll pass that over to Christian in a, in a minute to talk about that. Um, but others um, did rituals where they would um, do a lot of self-talk. Okay, um, the audience are my friend, um, uh, 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 and and they would use mantras. I am loved. I am a good performer. I have worked on my craft, and then the final technique that I, I'll share with you today, and I have uh, quite a few more of these, but these were the the general ones that that surfaced the most. Was they would um, get completely involved in their character and in their objectives for their role. So they would get they would immerse themselves in the role so that. They knew that they were in the skin of the character. They would put their costume on, and once that costume was on, they were in that skin. And they didn't need to be themselves anymore, okay? They left themselves the minute they, they actually closed the stage door. And they became the character when they put the costume and the makeup on. And they were very secure in that because they weren't themselves, okay? And it's often, and that's where the self-talk comes in too. But I will just pass over to you for breathing because I know that you talk a little bit about breathing for calming. Yes. Yes. yes I'll talk a bit about breathing. Okay. Thanks for the question. Uh, performance anxiety is very real. Uh, I experience it whenever I uh, play the piano. It's the most frightening thing because so much can go wrong. So mm -hmm. I know what you're talking about. Okay. So there, there are two things that uh, uh, we need to talk about. Firstly is the breathing because what breathing does, it activates a part of your nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system. You don't have to remember that, but the better name for it is rest and digest. So if you imagine that you're um, looking out over a beach, you're on a picnic blanket, you're having your favorite food, you're with your favorite people, you're watching a beautiful sunset and the temperature is just right, you're loving the, uh, the discussions and you're totally relaxed your uh, heart rate is low, your breathing rate is low, and you've got the digestive juices flowing, okay? Whatever you're snacking on, the uh, stomach is starting to digest, and it feels great. 
The opposite side of that nervous system is called the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, you might know it as fight or flight. And this is when you are confronted with a threat. Uh, let's say a saber-toothed tiger, which I haven't seen too often, but uh, a, a snake. And what happens is it's exactly the opposite. Your heart rate goes up, your breathing rate goes up, you start to sweat and tremble, all your gastric juices dry up to the point where your, your, your whole mouth gets really dry, okay? Now, the reason I'm explaining all of this is because breathing, breathing deeply is the one thing that we can do voluntarily. All the rest happens automatically. If you see a saber-toothed tiger in front of you, then you will start sweating, you will start trembling, and there's nothing you can do about it. But you can deep breathe. And just before you have to give a presentation or just before you have to go on stage, you spend half an hour just breathing really deeply and relaxing your body. And this confuses your nervous system first. It's sort of like the nervous system goes, what, I, I, th I thought we felt really frightened. No, 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 we're breathing deeply. Oh, you mean I can start to have my heart beating slower? Yep, I can start to feel okay about this. Yes, and deep breathing works. The rituals work. Swearing at the audience works. <laughs> Self-talk, telling yourself that you're prepared for all of this. This all works. But the second thing I want to tell you about is an overall attitude. You see, we live in a society that judges everything that we do. And actually, that's okay. But there's one thing that people cannot judge. They cannot judge who you are. That cannot be taken away from you. And you can see that the people who love you, your immediate family and your friends and people who are close, the people who accept you for who you are, they're the ones that allow you to be who you are and you can be relaxed in that, which is why I'll often tell people, and I talked about this in another video that we did, How to Beat Anxiety, you are a human being. You are not a human doing. So in other words, even if you make a mess of things and make mistakes, you are still a human being. You will still be loved by those close to you. Okay, great. And so the last question for today, actually, yes. then, is how to manage living with someone with addiction. So we'll go back to addiction again oh, okay. and how to get them to realize that they have an addiction. So there's two parts to this question. So okay, over to you. Okay, thanks for the question. It's actually a very difficult question. It's much, much easier to, uh, to work with somebody. Can I have that back, please? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to work with somebody when they know uh, that they have an addiction because you'll often hear people say that if people admit to having an addiction or having a problem, they're halfway there. And in a sense, that's true. Because when somebody does not realize that they have an addiction and they deny the addiction, they're not going to get to work on it. And that is a very, very difficult situation. So, which brings me to the second one, how to get them to realize that they have an addiction. Okay, so this actually comes down to what your relationship with the person is. If it's somebody that you love and that you're close to and you value the relationship, uh, the first thing you've got to do is have a serious talk, okay? And you have to have one of those, look, we've got to sit down and talk. What? We've got to sit down and talk. You've got to let people know that this is serious, okay? And then you actually lay it down from your point of view. The problem is... 
you're drinking, okay? I feel insecure when you drink so much. I feel that you are going to get far too angry when you drink so much. I believe you have an addiction, okay? And then what will happen is you'll get a lot of denial and uh, a few words that'll actually only confirm what you say, okay? Then you've got to start talking about how it hurts you. And if it is a person who cares for you, they won't want you to hurt. They will actually look you in the eye and say, oh my God, I didn't realize. So the message that I want to give is don't be afraid to let somebody know. Don't be afraid to let somebody know that they're hurting you. Because if you don't let them know, then they won't have a chance of changing. Okay? There are so many people that just sort of go through day to day hoping that the other person's gonna change. Okay? Well, if they don't know, then they can't change. Once you have told them, then the responsibility shifts to them. Oh, you told me that. Okay? Now they may fail, but you can actually support them to try again. Okay? And you can together come up with a plan. If those sort of things fail, then you've got to go to a higher authority, okay? Uh, what do I mean by that? Okay, so I want you to see a doctor about this. I, I, I want you to see a, a drug counselor about that. Oh, I don't need to, I don't have an addiction. And then you say, that's fine, because if you go and talk to them and tell them the honest truth, and then you come home and they say that you don't have an addiction, I will believe you, okay? so. Again, you put the onus on them to go out and get a little note that says this person does not have an addiction, okay? Now, you and I both know that people don't write those notes, okay? Uh, and the best case scenario, if this is somebody really close to you, and this is what a lot of people have done when they've come to see me, they bring the person along that's concerned to make sure that the truth gets told, the right things get told, and that anything that I say get set in front of somebody else too. And that's shared responsibility. And th that works if you really care for somebody. But if you're just sharing with somebody who has an addiction, that's much more difficult. And unfortunately, I have to say to you, make sure you're safe, okay? Make sure you're okay. Because uh, it's bad enough seeing an addiction take one person down, but you don't want an addiction to take two people down. Thanks so much for your question. Okay. Well, thank you so much for showing up. Um, and thank you for the people that are listening to. I hope this has been really helpful to you. And yeah, keep those questions coming. Um, really appreciated your contributions on the wall. Um, I know a lot of you are doing it really, really tough thinking of you and um, hoping that we can come back and answer some more of your questions um, and just support you through this. Okay. Take care. All the best, guys. Take care. Thanks. Bye.